who were ignoring God. So the remnant of God's people, they'd come back after exile in Babylon, and they were a people who were ignoring God. They were ignoring him, ignoring the warning signs that he'd sent to make them realize that they'd been ignoring him and his priorities. And so having ignored all the signs, God sends Haggai to give them a bit of a verbal slap, a bit of a wake-up call like Graham talked about earlier, which at the end of chapter 1 resulted in them starting to rebuild the temple, something they'd ignored for 18 years. However, they still seemed a little bit afraid of all those nations around, the people whose threats had stopped them rebuilding in the first place. So God had reminded his people again and again of who he is as their God. He's the Lord Almighty, the Lord of all armies on heaven and on earth. He's the one to be feared above everything and everyone else. And he promises them again and again his presence with them as they do the work he's called them to do. He says, I am with you at the end of chapter one, at the start of chapter two. Really emphatic things. But then we saw last week how the people kind of got a bit complacent and thought that they'd earned. Like, of course God's with us. We're doing what he said, what he's told us to do. We've done the right things. And in the passage that Emma just read, you hear that thing about consecrated, clean, unclean and stuff. And we learned from that passage that um, God's presence with his people was not anything that they had earned. Their good works couldn't make up for their bad hearts and couldn't earn God's blessing. But then nevertheless, in a statement of shocking grace, at the end of verse 19, God promises to a completely undeserving people this incredible promise, from this day on, I will bless you. And we saw how that came completely out of the blue and how incredible a promise that was. But, but it was a promise that seems to have left something of a question for the people of Jerusalem They seem to think that promise of blessing, that's a bit vague. This kind of nondescript blessing, what are you talking about? What does this blessing look like? They seem to be asking, how will God bless his people? How is God going to bless his people? He's promised blessing. What's that going to look like? Is that just going to mean that the temple is going to get finished? Or will the drought and famine that we've been really struggling with for the last 20 years or so, is that going to come to an end? What is God talking about here? How will God bless his people? And so to answer that question, later on the very same day that he promised them the blessing, if you look at the dates in the, uh, the passage Emma read to us, we see that it's on the same day Haggai comes back and gives a bit more detail to the people about what this blessing is going to look like. And the answer that he gives to Haggai is far more incredible than the people could probably ever have imagined because it is a far bigger blessing than they could ever have hoped for. And I think there are two clear parts to this blessing. We're going to see each part in turn. And the first way that God says he will bless his people is by removing all his enemies. So the first way God says he'll bless his people is by removing all of his enemies. That's in verses 21 and 22. So if you remember, the people, as I said, they'd only returned to Jerusalem 18 years ago. And when they returned, they had made a start initially on rebuilding the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed when they'd invaded. But Ezra 3 and 4 tell us that when they were rebuilding it, they were always kind of looking over their shoulder in fear. They were people living in fear because the whole of the nations around Jerusalem kept kicking off and threatening them. And that's what led to them stopping rebuilding in the first place. And the truth is, 18 years later, they're still surrounded by hostile neighbors. 
They're still in a city that doesn't have any walls, so it's not safe. Many of the people could still remember the horrors of the Babylonian invasion. And they all knew only too well that if the mood of the Persian king changed at any point, which it could, their peace and their safety could just disappear. And so even 18 years after that originally started, the people are still looking over their shoulders in fear. So can you imagine just how encouraging these words would have been to these people in verse 21 and 22? Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of their brother. Verse 22 echoes language and imagery from the Exodus. Verse 22 echoes language and imagery that comes out from the Exodus, which was God's incredible rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. And God promises to defeat all the enemies of his people in that same way again. What a promise to this people who would be so afraid. This is huge, right? A total victory over all of their enemies. A second Exodus blessing. What an incredible promise. Except we're a bit later on than when this book happened. And as we look through history and we read the history of these these people, well, this never quite comes true. Yeah, the people were able to finish rebuilding the temple and the city, and they lived there in relative peace for a bit. But this defeat of all powers and enemies of God's people, well, it just never happens. Yeah, the Persian Empire, who are currently ruling, eventually disintegrate, but others just come in and take its place. So this promise God makes, was he wrong? Like, couldn't God follow this promise through after all? What's going on here? Well, thankfully, the pattern all the way through the Old Testament is that when we see promises like this that only partly come true, that needs to make us ask where they completely come true. When we see promises in the Bible that only partly come true, that should make us ask where they completely come true. And hopefully, if you were listening you found the words in verse 21 pretty familiar. Tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, we've heard those words before in verse 6 a couple of weeks ago, and we saw that that was God speaking really about the final day of judgment on the whole earth, when he will shake the whole earth and remove the created things that we, as the world as we know it. Only his heavenly kingdom is going to be left when God shakes the heavens and the earth. And we saw a few weeks ago that when he does that, the ultimate salvation of God's people will finally happen as he gathers in his people from all over the world and all throughout history to live with him in peace forever, that ultimate salvation. But it isn't just that they're going to be living with him, kind of thinking, oh, God's protecting us, there's still baddies out there. No, God makes it really clear in this promise that this shaking is also going to get rid of every kingdom and person that is going to be opposed to God and his people. God's blessing will be seen fully as he removes all of his enemies on that day of judgment. But again, if you're anything like me, 
I get a bit uncomfortable when I talk about God's judgment. It makes me feel a bit like, oh, I don't, no, I don't like talking about this. I'm not conditioned to rejoice when I hear about God's ultimate judgment of people that I know and love. But thankfully, the Bible's been written for all Christians throughout all of time and history. And I think we'd probably view this promise a little differently if, if we lived in North Korea at the moment, where being a Christian is punishable by death. And if that death wasn't immediate, you'd just be sent to a labor camp where over 50,000 Christians in North Korea are currently living. Or if we were living somewhere like northern Nigeria, where Christians live in constant fear looking over their shoulder because they're regularly getting killed for their faith by militant groups. Or we view it differently if we lived in Libya or Somalia or Pakistan or Afghanistan or Eritrea or Yemen or Iran or India, somewhere where Christians do their temple-building gospel work of making disciples for Jesus all the time, looking over their shoulders in fear, waiting for the enemy to come and attack and persecute. And I think to people like that, God's promise of the removal of all opposition and a victory over all of his enemies, I imagine that would be incredibly encouraging and comforting, don't you? But that doesn't mean it's irrelevant to us, though. I want us to think about that. There are people around the world who this is really encouraging to, but that's not irrelevant for us. I mean, far from it. In 2012, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, he told the BBC that Christianity is facing gradual marginalisation in Britain. And let's be honest, nine years later, it seems like he was only wrong about how gradual it was going to be. Christian values and truths clash with popular culture values and truths all the time. And if you claim to believe what the Bible says, you're either laughed at for being an idiot or derided for being a bigot. Living wholeheartedly biblical Christian lives in 21st century Britain is probably just going to cost us more and more as life goes on. And I think we need to be prepared for that. We need to be aware of that. And so verse 22 is an encouragement we need to cling on to too. That as we do our work for the Lord, however long we're looking over our shoulders in fear, we're only going to have to do that for a little while, for a time. This isn't forever. And the knowledge that one day God will remove all opposition to his work, well, that gives us freedom to wholeheartedly serve him now it helps us to love and forgive those who do go after us because of our faith because verse 22 reminds us that God's got everything in hand and he will defeat his enemies verse 22 reminds us that God has got everything in hand the whole of history is in God's hands and he will defeat his enemies so we are then free to love them the way that we're called to no matter how hard that might be and not least by telling them how dangerous resisting this offer of forgiveness that we know through, we get through God is. I don't know all of your work situations. The joys of COVID means I've not had many chances to chat with people in church over the last year, which is a real shame. So I don't know if any of you are working in a situation where you feel like you're constantly looking over your shoulder in fear about what people are going to say about what your church believes. If that's you, I want to encourage you to keep going. Keep being faithful, no matter how outdated and bigoted you might be accused of being no matter what opposition you might face no matter how left out you might feel and might be because of what you believe 
no matter how mocked you get by your so-called friends, that won't be forever. One day God is going to remove all of his enemies and all oppositions to him and his people. But God's blessing doesn't stop there. So first he says he'll remove his enemies. And then the second way God says he'll bless his people is by installing his king. The second way God says that he'll bless his people is by installing his king. Now, there aren't many people mentioned by name in the book of Haggai. So there's Haggai himself. You've got Darius, this Persian king. You've got Joshua, this high priest. And then the person that this message is specifically addressed to, if you look in verse 20, Zerubbabel. You have to excuse me probably saying that a different way every time it comes up. So who is this Zerubbabel bloke after all? Well, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that he's the governor of Judah. So that would mean he's a bit like a local MP, but with less power. Um, And he was probably Darius's puppet. And probably only given this title of governor to stop the people feeling so ashamed at being ruled by a foreign empire. I don't know if any of you know of the footballer Paul Ince. Whenever he got to a new club, he told them, don't call me Paul Ince, call me the governor. Um, it's a bit rich giving yourself a nickname, but that's what he did. I think it's a bit similar to this, was, well, I'm the governor here, you know. Okay. We all know Darius is really king. But in chapter 1, verse 1, that also tells us that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Now, that name might not mean anything to us, but again, for the people of Haggai's day, that name tells them a lot. Because reminding them of Zerubbabel's father would have reminded them to think back to who Zerubbabel's great, great, great however many times grandfather was. And that was Israel's greatest ever king, King David. Zerubbabel should have been king. Zerubbabel should have been king and not just a puppet governor. He was David's descendant. He should rightfully have been the king of all these people, but sadly, even his name was a reminder of just how bad things were. His name means Seed of Babylon. It's just another reminder of how ruled these people were by others. And yet, verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, Signet ring, just to make sure we're all clear on that, was a ring with a design on the top of it that a king would have his own unique design. And whenever he sent like a royal message out in a royal memo, he would stamp it with that particular design and the wax sealed it up. And it basically showed that um, whatever was enclosed in that bit of writing came with the authority of the king. You might have seen them in like films and TV shows, these are stamps. But years earlier, more particularly for Zerubbabel, in Jeremiah 22 verse 24... God told the then king Jehoiakim, sometimes called Conaniah in your books, Conaniah, sorry, in your books, it's a bit confusing, but he was Zerubbabel's ancestor, and God had told him that he was going to remove him like removing his own signet ring. Throw him away and deliver him into the hands of the Babylonians, which is exactly what happens. It was a really strong curse and judgment from God on this unfaithful king. But here... God undoes that judgment. He undoes all of that. I will take you and I will make you like my signet ring. For I've chosen you, declares the Lord. Which is incredible news for Zerubbabel, isn't it? Like this curse, a dog, this family for a few generations, suddenly undone. But it's also 
even better news for the people. Because a strong, godly leader was always a sign of sure fire blessing for the people and the nation. When God was with their king, the nation thrived. And here God promises exactly that. What an encouragement to this people to keep going, no matter how rubbish life felt. God has blessed our king. Our king is God's king. Oh, let's keep working then. No matter how hard it might get. But again, history throws a problem at us. Because Zerubbabel never actually becomes king. This people are never an independent nation again. They're always under the rule of more powerful neighbors, and they'd never have their own king again. So what's going on with this promise? Well, did you spot when God said, did you spot when God said that this promise would come true at the start of verse 23? Have a look down. It says, on that day. God's king is going to be established on that day. On what day? Well, that's referring back to verse 20 and 21 and 22. Meaning the day that God shakes the heavens and the earth, the day that he will judge everyone who opposes him, that's when he's going to install his king with the ultimate authority. You see, Zerubbabel is only a shadow and a signpost to God's true forever king. Zerubbabel, like all of the kings in the Old Testament, are only signposts and shadows to point towards God's true forever king king who will come and who will rule and who will bring in God's kingdom all through the old testament God speaks of David and his descendants and other people he promises blessing to in terms that could never be completely true of them as individuals and he makes promises about what they would achieve and accomplish that they're never going to fulfill because all of those promises were never ultimately about any one member of David's family except for one all of these promises to David and his descendants, including this one to Zerubbabel, they all find their complete fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, at the start of his account of Jesus' life, he writes down the family tree of Jesus and he specifically points out Jesus' Davidic ancestors. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, there's Zerubbabel. All of these historical figures were all signposts pointing forward to God's true king. Jesus, the greatest representative of God that there could be, the best signet ring possible. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. He is God's perfect seal and authority. He is the perfect representative and authority because he is God become flesh. And Jesus is God's greatest servant, far greater than Zerubbabel is. Philippians 2 describes him like this, that he was being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus takes the very form, he chooses to take the very form of a servant, becoming human, and then serves and obeys God wholeheartedly like nobody else ever could in every area of his life. And then willingly goes to the cross to die to take the punishment for all of our uncleanness, sin, and disobedience. And so on that day, that great day when God shakes creation, 
as well as removing all opposition, as well as gathering in his people to himself, Jesus will be exalted to the highest possible throne and place and finally seen and known by all as King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, every knee will bow to this king and every person will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone who mocks us now will acknowledge it then. God's king will rule unopposed and utterly adored by all who chose to follow him in this life. He will judge all of the enemies of God. He will remove any who haven't run to him as their king before then. What incredible encouragements to the people of Haggai's day. This people looking over their shoulder, ruled by a foreign king, weak and vulnerable. But so what? Like any child can answer that question, what's this all about? Jesus. We all know this. We've heard there's been enough services to know this to be true. So what? I mean, it's all very interesting, Dan, but I knew the answer was going to be Jesus all along. So just chill out. Don't think you're so smug and clever. What difference does this promise of God's blessing make to us? What difference does this promise of this king make for us two and a half millennia later on? Well, first, if you're not yet a Christian listening to this or watching this online, if you're not somebody who has come to Jesus already and Jesus alone and received the forgiveness that he alone can offer, then none of this comfort is true of you. I'd be wrong to tell you this is a comfort for you because it isn't. If Jesus is not the king of your life now, then he will not be your king on that day. He'll be the king you wish you bowed the knee to while you had the chance. I mean, the Bible makes it really clear. There's no sitting on the fence here. You're either part of God's kingdom and on his side, or you're not, and you're his enemy. And there is no future hope for God's enemies. If you're not a Christian, this life's as good as it gets. Ahead, the future and this judgment is only much, much worse. But this Jesus is a gracious, loving king who welcomes anyone who comes to him. Jesus is a gracious, loving king who welcomes anyone who comes to him in repentance, meaning being sorry for living life without him and wanting to live for him now and in faith that he and he alone can and will make you clean and make you part of his kingdom. He loves to make enemies his friends. He's done everything necessary to do that, so why not come and do that today? While there's still time, before that great day of shaking, why not come and know this new life and this forgiveness and this blessing as one of his people? But this isn't just an evangelistic call, because if we are Christians, the truths of these promises, they should encourage and energize us as we carry on the temple-building Great Commission work that we're all called to. We know that Jesus is this promised king who'll one day rule. We know that. But let's be honest, he's a king we can't see right now. Only most of our friends and family and neighbours don't even think exists. And if we're really honest, his kingdom on earth seems to be growing painfully slowly, if at all, right? And we seem to face just constant opposition. And waiting and living by faith instead of sight is it's hard, isn't it? It's tough. 
But these promises given 500 years before Jesus even breathed his first human breath are given by God to encourage us that one day our faith will become sight. Jesus will return as king. We won't miss it. Every eye will see it and we will have an eternal glorious rest in complete peace, even better than the peace in Eden. There won't be any serpent to tempt us then. It won't even be possible. There will be no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more face masks, no more disagreements, no more aging or pain or separation from people we love. Nothing will stop us singing then. There'll be no more loneliness no more exhaustion. Our future rest and our future glory is guaranteed because God is a God who keeps his promises. Our future rest and our future glory is guaranteed because God is a God who keeps his promises and we see that most clearly through Jesus. So we can keep on obeying things God calls us to now. Whatever we're called to do, to fulfill our great commission purpose of going into all the world, wherever that may be for us, and making disciples for him and teaching them to obey him. When the opposition comes, when it's exhausting, when it feels too hard, when it feels impossible and pointless, when it feels like, in truth, we're on the losing team, we need to remember this. We need this reminder of the end of the story, don't we? Jesus wins. God wins and he will share that victory with us on that great day when he returns and every eye sees him and he will call us to be with him forever. This struggle, this suffering, this pain, it's worth it. It is worth it. These promises of blessing to the people in Haggai's day remind us of that truth. It is worth every pain we're called to go through to follow Jesus. It is worth every tear, every hurt, every rejection, Everything we might have to miss out on in this life, no matter what pleasure that might be, Jesus is completely and supremely worth it. On that day, our trust, our hope and service of the king who's presently unseen, who everyone mocks us for trusting and living for, will be completely vindicated. It is worth it. So keep going. Keep sacrificing for him. Keep living wholeheartedly for him. The great blessing God gives through Haggai is also for us. So we should be encouraged and filled with hope and not despair and keep trusting in and serving this king. We can cling to these promises. We can cling to this blessing more than anything else. The preacher Charles Spurgeon, I think, said it like this. He understands the way we work really, really well. He says, we're too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. We're too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. But these promised blessings are better than cast iron, guaranteed. So we need to cling to these more than anything else. If you're struggling, if you're hurting today or in the future, you need reminding of this. I need reminding of this in the future. All this pain... This frustration is just for a time. The day of shaking is coming. So keep going. But this isn't just a promise given to us to help us endure stoically while we're alive, to grit our teeth and get on with it until death. No, this victory that will be seen by everyone on that day is a victory we can begin to know now. We can still rejoice and praise God now in the middle of our sufferings because 
this promise keeping reminds us that none of our suffering is wasted and none of it is pointless because we're on the winning side because victory is secured already our pain and hurting need not be what we focus on most and we can know joy even in the middle of it that doesn't mean we're not allowed to feel the pain that doesn't mean we're not allowed to be honest about that pain we absolutely are hurt hurts pain is painful And this life is full of both. But what it does mean is that when the volume gets turned up on the pain we're feeling and all those hurts and injuries that cause us anxiety and frustration and worry and disappointment, when the volume gets turned up on that, we need to turn the volume up on the blessing as well. We need to be reminded of the truth. They don't have to turn the one down. We don't have much say over this one. What we do have say is what we listen to most. That's what joy is, isn't it? The truth that in all the hurts and the pains of our life, our Savior is still with us, we're still his, and he still wins. And he will take us home, and nothing that happens can stop that. That's part of why we need each other. We need to be honest with each other about the pains we're feeling, to keep telling each other about what is loudest in our life at the moment. But then we need each other to help turn the volume up on the truth that we forget about so easily. These truths of blessing and promise. The knowledge of God's victory in the future reminds us that God isn't defeated by our sufferings. The same affection that God lavishes on Zerubbabel is the same affection we have now because, as he says, God's chosen us. If you're a Christian, God has chosen you since before the foundations of the world. And God isn't like me in a supermarket thinking, what do I want for dessert? I can't decide. He's not indecisive. He doesn't change his mind and he doesn't regret anything. So when we're tempted to give up, we can remind ourselves, yes, of the future to come, but also of the present truth that we're on the winning side and our king fights in the battles with us and the pains and the hurts now are just a little birth pains of the joy that is to come and that he's working through and in every situation for our good. This truth also helps us as we battle with our sin. Whatever that sin we're battling with is, we don't have to sit resigned to failure with it until we get to heaven. Because while the earth isn't shaken yet, King Jesus' reign has already begun. The world just doesn't acknowledge it yet, but it will. But right now we know he is king. And so we can have confidence that because Jesus is God's forever king now, we can fight sin we can resist temptation we can change and grow in those areas of our life where we so often feel that we can't and we can find joy in the middle of the battle the sin we fight is not bigger than the king we serve the sin we fight is not bigger than the king we serve so we can fight and because of God's promises shown here in Haggai and completed in Jesus we can see and know victory and triumph over our sins now Today, fighting sin now is the evidence of the victory we're going to win in the future. If all of this wasn't true, why bother fighting? There wouldn't be a fight at all. But because Jesus won, we can fight. The Bible doesn't teach that we're ever going to be sinless or perfect. Let's not hear that if I'm not sinless or perfect, I'm failing. The Bible never teaches we'll be sinless and perfect in this life. But it does teach that in this winning King Christ, through the word and by the spirit of God living in us and with each other helping each other, it is possible to fight and have victory over sin. And so this means that we can also take risks 
in forgiving each other, serving each other, loving one another, helping one another. We can sacrifice because we know the future is only better ahead. But we can't do this work alone. No one Israelite could build that temple by themselves. They needed each other's help and energy. And let's be honest, they're reminders of these truths that we know they're going to forget because they're like us and we forget them too. We need each other. So if you're battling sin at the moment, if you feel like you're drowning, if you feel like sorrows and despairs are overwhelming you at the moment, you need your church family. You need other Christians. You don't need to hide it. Share with one another. And then encourage each other. If you feel like you're struggling and battling sin, you need other Christians. Or if you feel like you're not struggling and battling sin, you also need other Christians too. Because one of our enemy's best ta- tactics to lead us to fall into sin is to present the bait, but hide the hook. I love to present the bait. Oh, isn't that good? It's a good thing. Do this thing. It's a really good thing for you. But hides the hook of the truth of where the sin will lead. We need each other to remind ourselves of the hook, the pain, the hurt, the wisdom of what we're doing. The end result of the temptations we face. And God's promise here through Haggai, his way of overthrowing rulers who snare us today, is through his Holy Spirit in us, fueled by his word, with the help of others. And then this encourages us to worship too. Wholehearted, all of life worship, giving everything we have to this king who's won everything for us and gives everything to us. And our job as Christians is to remind each other of these glorious truths that God will remove all opposition to him and that Jesus Christ will one day rule unopposed in the world around us and in our hearts. And to encourage each other to live wholeheartedly, whatever the cost, now. That's what worship is, isn't it? Living wholeheartedly for God in all areas of our life. And then we call others to worship him by telling them about this incredible king who they don't deserve the love of, but who the love is promised to and who gathers in people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. These verses are a reminder that in the end, God wins. Jesus wins. Praise God, and we shares that victory and the blessing of that with us, no matter what. So we can worship and serve him wholeheartedly now together.